Let's pray as I ask you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Father, this good work that you have began in us, would you carry it on to completion as your word promises? And this measure of communion that you have given us with you this morning, would you double it and multiply it, deepen it, sweeten it? Oh, Lord, would you extend it? We want to remain in your presence before your face. We want to continue in the joy that comes from being before you, the pleasure being with you, the sweet spiritual and holy pleasure that only you can give. So, Lord, we are overwhelmed by your love. We are amazed by your love. We praise you for your love. Give us a a further, deeper sense of your love, we pray. Speak to us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 1 to 10. For this month, we have been considering... The Bible's teaching on the incarnation. Incarnation is a a fancy word that means God taking on flesh, taking on our humanity. And you'll recall that we began with our brother Bo Hughes on the first Sunday, uh, looking at Revelation chapter 19. It's helping us to think about the, the breaking in of the king of kings into our world and the coming of his kingdom. And then last week, our brother Michael Gormley led us through a wonderful treatment of John chapter 1. We were taught there that the Word became flesh. That Word that was with God and was God took upon himself our flesh and dwelt among us. And this morning, I want to consider from Hebrews chapter 10 why all of that is happening. Why does God take on our flesh? If we're not careful, as Michael pointed out, this could be one of those sort of um, weird Christian things that Christians believe that we don't actually have an adequate sort of explanation for, but we just know we have to believe it because it's what Christians believe. And if we're not careful, we can slip into this notion that this is just some kind of divine parlor trick, that, that God just wanted to get clever for a minute and do something surprising. But beyond that, there's, there's not much reason to it. We can slip into thinking those ways, and we would be wrong. We'd be misguided. For the incarnation has a very definite purpose, and it meets a very definite human need. Let me tell you what that need is. Perhaps you are old enough to have felt it. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt you needed to somehow get to God. To get a word to God, to get a response from God, to get help from God in some way. You ever been in a situation where it's like, you know in that moment, though you maybe have never thought about God before, or maybe you've not thought about God for a long time, or maybe you have been following God in such ease that you've forgotten your need. 
Ever been in a situation, though, where all of that stripped away, all the illusion of self-control, all the illusion of, of self-efficacy and empowerment, all the illusion of ease has just been kind of removed, and there you are, metaphorically naked in life. Nothing else, no one else, and you remember God. And remember your need for God. And you call out for God. Have you ever wondered, how can I get to God? That's the problem the incarnation solves. Now, in our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 10, we're going to see in the first four verses that there's a way of attempting to get to God that just doesn't work. And we're going to see in the next five to ten verses, or five to t- verses five to ten, we're going to see that there's a way that actually does work that doesn't involve us getting to God, but God getting to us. It's what we call the incarnation. So look with me in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hallelujah. Two points to the sermon. Number one, I want us to consider why shadows don't save us. Why shadows don't save us, verses one to four. And number two, I want to consider why a body is necessary. Why an embodied Savior is necessary, verses five to ten. Well, there are three problems with the law and trying to live by it. That's what verses 1 to 4 is telling us. The letter to the Hebrews is written to some early Christians who had Jewish backgrounds. They have left Judaism and been following Jesus, and for that, they have been suffering, been suffering persecution and other things. And this group of early Christians were tempted to stop following Jesus and to go back to the law of Judaism, trying to approach God through the law. 
And the writer of Hebrews is writing this whole letter to show them why they should not do that, why they should not leave Jesus to go backwards, but they should instead continue on with Jesus. And we can put the argument of Hebrews into one sentence, one simple sentence. So if you want to understand what Hebrews is about, it's, it's, it's this, that Jesus is better than everything that came before him. That Jesus is better than everything that came before him. Chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews starts out, he proves that Jesus is better than the angels. Then he proves that Jesus is better than Moses. Then he proves that Jesus is better than the Sabbath. He goes on to prove that Jesus is better than the high priest of Israel, that Jesus is better than Melchizedek, that Jesus is better than the old covenant, that Jesus is a better sacrifice than the Old Testament sacrifice of bulls and goats. And that's where we are when we come to chapter 10. Our, our section of Hebrews begins with the issue of sacrifices. The writer is now comparing the Old Testament sacrifices to the sacrifice of Jesus. Of course, that means he has to say some things about the law, the Old Testament law, where the sacrifices are required. The people were wanting to go back to the law, but the writer wants them to know that Jesus is better that there are three problems with the law. Number one, in verse one, the law is but a shadow. The law is but a shadow. You see it there at the first part of verse one? For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. How many of you ever tried to hug a shadow? Hopefully not many of you. That's not rational. Maybe you've tried. As a kid, to box your shadow or to touch your shadow or to hug your shadow. But it doesn't work, does it? And it's because we know that the shadow is not a body. It's not the thing itself. A shadow can't be touched. A shadow can't be hugged or held onto. A shadow is a, really a kind of illusion created by light. When light shines over a body, a, a, a thing with substance, that thing with substance blocks out the light and creates, as it were, a pattern of itself in darkness. So a, a shadow suggests that there is something there, but it is not the something. Hebrews 1 is telling us that the law and its sacrifices are a shadow. They suggest that something is to come. You see that where it says the, the good things to come. But yet the shadow, notice, does not have the true form of these realities. What realities? The realities in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 to 28. Look there with me. The writer says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, he's talking now about the tabernacle and all the things in the tabernacle, to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. You see what he's saying? That the old system of sacrifices and the tabernacle and everything in it was made based on a pattern, a pattern that God showed Moses on the mountain. Those are patterned after the things in heaven itself. Now, the real thing are the things in heaven itself. And in some indescribable way, Christ's sacrifice has not only purified us who believe, but the text here says has purified the heavenly places itself. Those realities are the good things to come. That the law is but a shadow of, pointing to, but is not the reality of. The way the writer says it here in verse 1 is that the law does not have the, the true form of these things. This means that like all shadows, the law actually in some sense distorts the reality. You take your hand for a moment and put it in some place where it casts a shadow and take a look at the shadow. Chances are your fingers are longer than they actually are, aren't they? Or maybe you've seen your shadow walking by a building and, and you thought, my stomach ain't that big, you know, or I'm not that tall. The shadow stretches out or elongates, right? The shadows, in that sense, they, they are connected to the realities, but they don't actually present the true form of the reality. And so it is with the law and its sacrifices, even though they point to Christ. So the writer of Hebrews doesn't want Christians to go back to the shadow of the law, but to keep looking for the good things to come, the real things. And this has three important applications for us. Number one, we cannot see the good things of God to come and the future realities accurately just by looking at the shadow. More, more specifically, we cannot see Jesus accurately by looking at the law and the sacrifices of the law. We must actually look at Jesus. We must actually fix our eyes upon him in order to see him accurately and to be able to tell how the shadow distorts the real thing. More about that later. Secondly, if we want something real, we have to hug the body, not the shadow meaning we must hold on to Jesus rather than Jesus substitutes, rather than shadows. Turning from Jesus back to the law is like meeting your loved one at the airport whom you haven't seen in 10 years and, and choosing to try and go home with the shadow rather than the loved one. Makes no sense, does it? It's the body, the person that matters, not the distorted image of the person. We want to get clear on who Jesus is and hug him. Number three, this means then that we should not let anyone judge us by the shadow of the law, but by the clarity of Jesus. So Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17 makes this very point. The Apostle Paul writes there, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to the festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. See, he uses the same language the writer of Hebrews. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, the Greek word there is body, 
the substance, the body, belongs to Christ. Jesus Christ, come in human flesh, brings us out of the shadowlands of religion into a bodily relationship with God. Don't turn from that back to the law. Don't listen to Hebrew Israelites who tempt you to the law. Don't listen to legalistic Christians who tempt you to the law. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes upon him. Hold fast to him. He is the substance. And in him are all the good things that God promises. First problem with the law is it's not a shadow. The second problem with the law is that it has no power to make us holy before God. It has no power to make us holy before God. Because the law is a shadow, notice the second half of verse 1. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Notice the word never. It's a strong word. It, 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 it means it doesn't matter how long you try or how hard you try. There is no possible way that the law and its sacrifices can make a sinner perfect before God. It just doesn't work. And notice that word perfect. Why this goal of perfection? Well, the word perfect could also be translated holy. God is holy, which means that God is perfect. Humanity is not holy. We are nowhere near perfect, are we, beloved? And that, beloved, the fact that God is perfect and we are not, is actually our biggest problem. We're not like God. And because we're not naturally like God, we, we cannot be with God and live. His holiness would consume us like a burning fire. And because God is holy and we are not, a relationship with God is impossible through the law and its sacrifices. We will never climb up the mountain of legalism and ritual and sacrifice and find ourselves standing face to face with God. The law is powerless to do that. I don't know how many of you still watch classic cartoons, but every once in a while I still like to watch Looney Tunes or you know, some of those cartoons. And it's, it's always a, it's a cartoon that came to mind as I'm working on this. I'm thinking, how would I illustrate powerless? And, and it used to be in a cartoon, sometimes it'd be a, a you know, the cartoon characters be getting ready to fight or something, and one of them get real swole, start flexing. And you ever seen the cartoons where it makes a muscle and then the muscle droops <laughs> like that? That's what the law is. Law flexes real hard. And for a moment, he looks like he has biceps like Pastor Tim, right? But then, he goes, it's powerless. It's weak and ineffective in producing the perfection that God wants for us. So even if you offered sacrifices repeatedly every year, as the ancient Hebrews did, it still wouldn't make us perfect. That's why the writer asks the question of verse 2. Look there. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. It's like if they really worked, you wouldn't have to keep doing them. And then he goes on in verse 4, and he says it very plainly. Consequently, excuse me, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then there's this statement in verse 11. Look down there with me. 
And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. It's futile. The law lacks the power to perfect us. But being perfect is what we need most in order to be with God. And that's our dilemma. How to get such perfection in order to be with God. A third thing about the law, notice. The law can only remind us of our sin. End of chapter, or excuse me, in the end of verse 2, the writer points out there that if the law would work, they would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Then it says in verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So an effective sacrifice that, that brings us to perfection that God's, God wants actually removes from our consciousness sin. But these sacrifices have built in them a reminder every year of sin. So on the Day of Atonement, when ancient Jews would go and make sacrifices and, and draw near to God, attempt to draw near to God, what they would be reminded of, even in the act of making that sacrifice, is their sin. Their conscience was meant to be pricked. It was meant to be stirred with an awareness of their fault, of their trespasses before God. The law is holy the way God is holy. And holiness exposes sin. So again, when the law requires these sacrifices, it is, in that sense, burdening the conscience rather than blessing the conscience. It is making them aware of sin rather than making them free of sin. Try to imagine what this would be like, to be the kind of worshiper who is trying to draw near to God and offering your sacrifices as God has prescribed, and, and yet, every time you draw near, you're made aware of your sin. Imagine the burden that would be. And, and perhaps we know what that's like, don't we? Think of all the times that our conscience has told us we were wrong about something. We feel guilty. And, and think of how we have sometimes pulled back from God because of the awareness of that guilt. Well, think of the times we have tried to bargain with God. Lord, if, if, you, just, if you just free me from this thing, I will do X, Y, and Z. But isn't that still a consciousness of our sin rather than freedom from it? In all of that, we're reminded of our failure, our guilt, our shame. And we're seeing that our little sacrifices don't cleanse us. And this is why trying to be a good enough person to go to heaven will never work. This is why sacrifices made to God will, will not overcome our sins. This is why turning to Judaism in any form is fruitless. Because the law is a powerless shadow that only reminds us of our sin. We need something else. Now here, I just want to encourage us, if we're Christians, to recognize that it's still entirely possible for us to be Christians trusting Jesus and still relating to God in a legal framework. 
still sort of approaching God as if our relationship with him depends upon how well we obey his law. And don't get me wrong, we are called to obey God, but not as a way of earning his favor. We, we obey God, as Jesus says in John 14 and John 15, because we love God. And we love God because God first loved us. From beginning to end, it's God who is both loving us and pouring his love into our hearts, and we are responding with Abba Father, crying out in love back to God. And out of that newfound love through faith in Christ, we are, we are compelled now to live for God. But oh, how easy it is to think that our performance is what matters, that our relationship with God is built on that performance, and how entangling that is in either self-righteousness or hypocrisy. Because that's all that's really left to us when we begin to think that it's a matter of our own perfection, isn't it? We either become self-righteous, ignoring the sins that we commit and, and trumpeting the things that we happen to do right, or we become hypocrites altogether. But it's a way of approaching God that God never meant for us to use. And we know that because of our Second point, what we're told here about unnecessary bodies. So I want us as a church, I want us as Christians, more importantly, God wants us as a church, and God wants us as, a Christian, as Christians to leave a legalistic relationship with him and to come more fully into a gospel relationship with him. And that's what's unpacked for us in verses 5 to 10. The writer of Hebrews gives four things about the incarnation of the Lord that show us that, that following Jesus is the right way. It's a different way. It's a better way. It's a freer way. What we need is a body instead of a shadow. What we need is somebody to rescue us from our sins rather than us trying to rescue ourselves. What we need and what we celebrate is Christmas is precisely this, the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God in a human body for us so that what the law could not do, we might have through his body. Notice now the, the four things they tell us about the incarnation. Number one, the incarnation is absolutely necessary. It's absolutely necessary. Our first hint at that is in the first word of verse 5, consequently. That word simply means as a result, as a consequence. Verse 5 is telling us that the incarnation was a consequence of the fact that the blood of bulls and goats could not cleanse away our sins. Verse 4. There needs to be a, a sacrifice, but those sacrifices wouldn't do. There need to be another kind of sacrifice, one with the, the power to, to cleanse the sins of God's people. So the word consequently teaches us that the incarnation was an absolute necessity. If human beings were ever going to be perfected before God, the incarnation is not just a weird thing that Christians believe. It is vital Christian teaching. It is the beginning of how we are saved. God had to come or humanity would be lost. Here's the second thing about the incarnation. The incarnation means God came to us so we wouldn't have to climb to him. God came to us so we wouldn't have to climb to him. Look at that next phrase. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, when Christ came into the world, how easy it is to take that phrase for granted. The writer doesn't say, when we made our way to heaven. The writer doesn't say, when we figured out how to live right. 
the writer says there that when Jesus Christ came into the world, that's a perfect phrase defining the incarnation. This is the phrase that clearly lets us know that we're now talking about Christmas. It's at Christmas that we celebrate the eternal Son of God taking on human flesh and coming into the world. And Jesus is coming into the world is the most marvelous wonder in the universe. The eternal one entered time. The omnipresent one, the God who is everywhere all the time, entered a virgin's womb and an infant's body. The one who is fully God joins himself with human flesh. God's only begotten son and chosen savior of the world entered history for us. And when Christ came into the world, hope came too. Before, God's people were left with a law and sacrifices that could never work, as we've seen. The only thing they could achieve was condemnation. Their sins remained on them. They continued to be imperfect sinners trying to relate to a perfect God. That is a hopeless task. But when God came into the world now, light came. Hope came. Access to God was opened up. The one who made the world walked upon it. And everything changed with the incarnation. The incarnation means God came to us so we wouldn't have to go to him. Number three, the incarnation teaches us that Christ's body was prepared to replace the old sacrifices. The reason he has a body is so that old system would be replaced. This is what we see in verses 5 and 9. The writer quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. That's a psalm written by King David hundreds of years before Jesus came into the world. Now, I want you to notice something marvelous about this. This is just a little aside. The writer of Hebrews puts David's words in Jesus' mouth. Did you see that? It says, when Christ came into the world, he said. And then the writer is looking back now centuries earlier. David's words were more than David's words. David's words were also Jesus' words. And David's words are most true when we understand him in light of Jesus' life. So Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, become a conversation between Jesus and God the Father. Notice what Jesus says to the Father. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Notice, but a body you prepare for me. Here Jesus is, hundreds of years before the birth, the incarnation, speaking of the incarnation. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So in this conversation, the father and the son are talking together. And together they decide how they're going to save us. The father prepared a body for Jesus. And in that body, Jesus does all that the father wills. He does all that the father requires, as the Bible predicted. So this little quote from the poetry of the Psalms gives us both incarnation and imputation. Gives us the coming of the Son of God in human flesh in order that the righteousness of God might be made available to us. The writer of Hebrews goes on to explain the significance of all of this. See there in verses 8 and 9. He explains that the offerings of the law have been done away with. Notice that? 
so that the actual will of God would be established. Or we could put it another way. The shadow was replaced with the body. Jesus is that body. He is the good things to come in the true form of the spiritual realities that we hope for. In the first thing, in the law, that's done away with, the second thing is now established, the gospel. And if that's true, then once again, we should never turn back to the law and never turn away from Jesus and the hope of the gospel. Don't, don't leave the gospel to go back to the law. You, you'd be leaving blessing to go back to cursing. Makes no sense. This, again, is the argument of the book of Galatians, for example. So Christ's body was prepared now. The incarnation was the Father's preparation for replacing the law and its sacrifices, which could never make us perfect, and to give us now his will, his righteousness, in the body of his Son, in the perfect obedience of his Son, that we might have a sacrifice that works. And notice the fourth thing then about the incarnation, final thing. This new sacrifice of Jesus' body well, it does perfectly and forever what the law could not. Do you notice that? Notice verse 10. And by that will, Jesus taking the body, coming into the world, living a life of perfect obedience in fulfillment of God's requirements. By that will, we have been sanctified, another word for perfected. We have been sanctified, another word for holy. We have been sanctified through the offering of what? the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Or look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I need us to sit in that. Please understand and feel the contrast between the law and the gospel. The sacrifices of the law could never perfect us. But by the will of God, the offering of Jesus' body sanctifies us, notice again, once for all. And notice, and we have been perfected for all time. It's done. This is why the incarnation, the sacrifice on the cross, the resurrection, achieves everything we need achieved in order to be saved. Holiness, sanctification, perfection, the will of God. Once for all, for all time, through a single bodily offering of the Son of God, it is finished. That's good news. That's good news. And can I point you to just a little bit more grace in verse 14? For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hold those tenses together. On the one hand, we are perfected completely. On the other hand, we are being sanctified. This means that our ups and downs of being sanctified should never cause us to think that we're not already sanctified. That, that positionally in Christ, we are as perfect as we ever need to be in order to be with God, even though practically our perfection, our sanctification, our holiness is sort of up and down like a stock market. This means you don't ever have to look at your performance in order to know that you're secure with Jesus. You look at Jesus. You look away from the law. You look away from the condemnation. You confess it and you turn to Christ. You turn to God and you say, but yet you have perfected me, not by what I have done, 
but through the body that you prepare for your son, which he sacrificed on the cross and you raised from the grave. This is good news, beloved. It means that we can cease all of our attempts at perfection. And we can trust that Jesus has been perfect for us. We can cease all of our legalistic bargaining. bargaining, And we can rest. That it's already been done once and for all, for all time. There's freedom in that, beloved. There's freedom in that. It's freedom in that for mothers who struggle wanting to be perfect moms and to raise perfect kids. Go ahead and raise messy kids. Point him to Jesus. He's the perfection. There's freedom in that for, for people in the workplace, working very hard, trying to do everything right and to earn perhaps the favor of bosses. They just men. The one who really needs to be pleased with you is perfectly pleased with you. Trust in him. Do your work as unto him knowing that he gives you the reward. That's freedom in that for kids who are in the fifth grade or the third grade or the second grade or the 11th grade, ninth grade. <laughs> you know that your value, your worth is not determined by your behavior. Well, don't get me wrong. Mom and dad rightly want you to act like somebody, to behave. That's good for you. But that's not why they love you. It's not why God loves you. So if you bring a C, bring home your best C. If you bring home a B, bring home your best B. Bring home your best A. Bring home your best F. Yeah. You know why? As long as you try and you serve the Lord with it, it's not going to change how much you love your parents love you or how much God loves you. There's so much freedom in this verse, so much grace in this verse that we can fail boldly. Some of us are afraid of failing when we don't have to be because Christ has accomplished it all for us. Our worth and our value is not tied up in our success. Oh, that we would have this freedom. If you're listening and you're not yet a Christian, this is the freedom that God still offers you. That if you would confess your sins, your failures, and if you would turn away from those sins, quit, quit doing them, quit pursuing them, and instead put your faith in Jesus as the incarnate Son of God, the one who came in a body to die for your sins on the cross and who was raised in a body from the grave so that you might have eternal life through him, the Bible says that all of this perfection is yours. All this righteousness is yours by faith in the Son of God. That's why he came, to supply for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so you can stop all of your sort of religious efforts to be good enough. And trust Jesus and accept what he's done for you. The result of that is going to be forgiveness and freedom. It's going to be life and joy. And God extends it to you now. Put your faith in him. And this for us as Christians is, this is the basis of our confidence before God, isn't it? This is the basis of our assurance. We are sure that we are going to go to heaven and be with God, not because of what we have done for God, but because of what God has done for us. 
not because of our sacrifices in his name or to his name, but because of the one who sacrificed himself. And so nothing, nothing can take us away from the love of God. And nothing can undo a sacrifice that was once and for all accomplished that also perfects us for all time. Take those words to heart. We are perfected for all time. We are holy for all time because of what Jesus has done for us. Doubt not the Father's love for you. Doubt not the Father's acceptance of you. Doubt not the Father's grace toward you. For if you are in Christ, you have everything the Father could ever give and way more than we could imagine. This is why it's important that Jesus came in a body to accomplish our salvation. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We thank you for this divine conversation you guys had with each other before the worlds began. When you decided to prepare him a body and he volunteered to come do your will. We thank you for your spirit who agreed to come and to apply all that Jesus accomplished and that you appointed to our lives. We thank you that our salvation does not depend upon us, but on the one who was incarnate, who was crucified and resurrected, and who is coming again. And we pray, give us grace to look away from ourselves, to look to Jesus, to hold fast to him, and to forsake the shadow. Help us to live in the reality. Help us to live with Jesus, we pray. Seal this to our hearts in his glorious name. Amen.